Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Hey man, today's episode was created in honor of Male Survivors Awareness Day, and it was recorded on that day without me which makes it the very first episode of Husband Material that does not include Drew Boa. It's also the very first community-based episode where men came together, joining their voices, their stories, and their statistics to present you with a really great snapshot of what it's like to be a male survivor of sexual abuse. If you yourself are a survivor, then this will be incredibly encouraging and you will feel surrounded by men who understand what you have gone through. And if you are not a survivor of sexual abuse, this episode was actually designed for you to give you the education and instructions you need on how to understand and relate to men who have been through the hell of childhood sexual abuse. You'll learn a lot through the stories, statistics, and poetry that's shared. By listening to this episode, you are becoming part of a solution and making the husband material community a safer place for men who have been through sexual abuse. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, husband material men. Uh, Drew Boa is not here. He is on paternity leave at the moment. Uh, Yay, they had a baby. Everyone's healthy in the meantime. uh, I'm Mike Chapman. I'm husband material certified coach. And with me is Doug Carpenter who is also a husband material moderator and uh, author and a psychiatrist and psychologist, all, psychologist, <laughs> no meds, right? No meds. Can't do the meds. All right. Today is national male survivor awareness day, male survivor, men healing, and a few other secular groups that work with survivors, specifically male survivors, decided to make an awareness day. I looked into what the idea of male survivor awareness day and thinking not only do we want to honor the survivors, but also awareness, helping non-survivors understand how to work with us, uh, how to step alongside us on our recovery journeys, what to look for, how to help us, how not to help us, and just to understand us better. We've got several guests that some are going to be live. Some sent us things ahead of time because they could not be here live. Douglas, can you introduce yourself? And I believe you where there was different statistics and so forth from your book and your research uh, yeah. that you've written this wonderful book and workbook series. I've got the workbook here handy. Uh, Secret, shame. I've got the book handy. And you got the book handy. Yay. Uh, Of course. And tons of statistics and so forth about this. You've done so much research and it was a very beneficial uh, book as well. Uh, What statistics would you like these people to know? So, So one thing I would say is that I have been treating survivors um, for about 25 years. I am myself a survivor as well. Um, And I never found a really good resource that helped uh, men fully understand their abuse, the effects of the abuse, how it is 
currently playing out in their lives, and then specifically how it was connected to issues of addiction, uh, such as sexual addiction, uh, pornography use, and, and uh sexual dysfunction. So I set out about seven years ago to write this book. Um, so that way it would be pretty much the most comprehensive book out there on the subject, linking the two um, ideas. So the book is full of research that I have done um, and that I have reviewed along with my own writings um, on the topic. So tonight we wanted to share many of the statistics that are in the book with you, just so you would have an awareness. Again, this is about awareness of how male sexual abuse affects an, an individual that it happens to and the various statistics. So the first one that's the most important is that it's been estimated that one in six men have been um, have had at least one incident of sexual abuse by the age of 18. And you can read more about that on the statistic that says um, one in six.org. And that's a great resource uh, with lots of helpful in, uh, information. The second point is boys are most vulnerable between the ages of eight and 12. A lot of times perpetrators do not like to uh, perpetrate boys as they get into adolescence because they're getting stronger. They're understanding what's going on. They're able to fight off. The statistical median, the median is the middle score uh, for the age of abuse is 9.6 years or 9.9 years of age. So that's, that's the average, the median age at which abuse occurs. Um, many of you know this from being part of the Husband Material Academy, but the first exposure to inappropriate sexual images online is somewhere between the ages of 8 and 11. Um, there are many different research articles that are currently out right now, um, and all those fall within the, the ages of 8 to 11. And it's also important to know that um, not all men who are sexually abused experience uh, some type of negative symptoms that last into their adult years. Only 60% of, of people who experience male sexual abuse have some kind of noticeable symptoms that they can identify in their lives. So 40% of men uh, do not have uh, symptoms. They were resilient enough. Um, one thing that helps with that is if they disclose very quickly and whoever they disclose to is a very supportive person to them a lot of times it won't have lasting effects. So a lot of it depends on what happened uh, during the, uh, the abuse, uh, what happened with the immediate disclosure. Right. Two large studies that looked at men and disclosure determined that uh, men wait an average of 25 to 26 years before they ever disclose that something happened to them. And that puts most of them in between the ages of 30 and, and 50. So somewhere between that 20-year time span is typically when men begin to disclose their abuse or, or even come to an awareness that something actually happened to them. Many men, uh, because of the nature of the abuse, uh, question, was, was that abuse? Right. That was uh, true in my own case. I blocked it out till age 30. and But a lot of times men choose not to disclose because they think they won't be believed. And so, yeah, it's uh, 20 plus years after the fact that they finally 
feel they can trust someone or yes. they even realize that it was abuse. Or, or, and a lot of times they're thrown into some kind of treatment environment because of some other issue, either criminal behavior, alcoholism, drug addiction, something that then discovers and finds that the root of these problems is childhood sexual abuse. Right. Um, there's actually uh, a question being thrown up in the Q&A section right now that I'm actually going to get to right now. There is research that indicates that close to 20,000 children with disabilities are sexually abused per year. And this is from RB asking, are there statistics for male and females with disabilities as far as the one in six? There are. I only examined um males and not females in in my research but in the research i it's been identified that about 20,000 uh children per year and there was actually a national report in 2003 that stated 68% of children with disabilities at some point will be a victim of sexual violence so Children with disabilities are four to seven times more likely to be abused than children who do not have disabilities. And so that's that's very important for all of us to increase our awareness of that. If you have a child with any kind of disability, a learning disability, uh, a mental physical disability, that puts them at greater risk of of abuse and they need more protection. Right. 71% of child sex offenders are under the age of 35. Yeah, I saw that. That was amazing. So most perps are younger adults. Yes. Older adults, not the dirty old man stereotype. Right. Not that stereotype. You're exactly right, Mike. One study reported that one in seven incidents of sexual assault perpetrated by juveniles took place during the weekday. And that it's typically after school between the hours of 3 to 7 p.m. With those school-age children, it happens during the week, and it typically happens right after school between 3 and 4 p.m. is at the highest mark. The peak hours for adolescent assault is for ages 12 to 17 is the late evening hours. Because adolescents tend to stay up later. They're not monitored as well. And so... That's when things tend to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And probably have As permission a, to go out. Yes. Folks more so than the, the younger children. But after school, yeah. that's startling. Also. And there are a couple of really great sites. If you want to look at statistics of abuse in relation to the church, bishopaccountability.org, I think, is another one. There's another um, organization called SNAPS. Um, that that you can look at. I can't remember off yeah, the top it's, of it's my snap, head. It's uh, yeah, snap.org, I believe. It's yep. um, survivors something uh, abused by priests. Yes, it's, so, it's by priest. I don't remember what the N and the A right, stand for. Right. <clears throat> um, but as of 2018, 7,002 priests, which comprised 5.9 of all Catholic priests, had been uh, charged with child as a childhood sexual abuser with a total of 20,052 known victims. Wow. 
So there, you know, this can really be a problem in in certain religious sects, and I'm not just pointing out the Catholic Church there. They you know, I mean, those. that's well publicized. There, it happens in other religions as well. Mm-hmm. Research indicates that in the last 25 years, that males reported a slightly greater uh, degree uh, or occurrence of PTSD than females who were victims of childhood sexual abuse. Now, that's really important. I think that's something that we need to really increase awareness of because there are some research that shows that uh, sexual abuse to a male um, results in more PTSD than females. Now, it's just slightly, and I'm not discounting uh, abuse happening to females, but you know, so know many, there's, so many, there's so many myths that, that males aren't affected by this or because their body responds, they wanted it. And this research does not back that up. That that shows that that is a myth. Right. Why, why is PTSD higher in males than females? Do they know why? Well, I think some of it, it, the shame factor is so high for males because there's so many layers of shame involved in that. Like, there's societal shame, like you're supposed to like sex. There's physical shame. My body responded. So there's multiple layers layers of shame where I think that shame then becomes toxic shame for the male, where a female, when it's when she's perpetrated or penetrated, they're more easily and readily able to see themselves as a victim, where a male has layers of shame thinking, was I a participant? Right versus being a victim when they truly are a victim. That makes sense. Uh, one study found that men who have experienced adult child forced sexual contact are two, are two times more likely to suffer from sexual dysfunction, such as premature ejaculation or what we consider hypoactive sexual desire, not having any sexual interest at all. Right. Um, according to the leading sex addiction specialist, Dr. Patrick Carnes, he found that 80% of sex addicts report a history of childhood sexual abuse. So there's a huge correlation there. And that's one reason why I specifically wrote the book that I wrote, because there wasn't enough information out there linking those two things in an understandable way of, of how they're related. It's estimated that 3 to 6% of the population population struggles with sexual addiction that equates to about 12 million adults so a a high percentage of them have been sexually abused one study reported that sexually uh, victimized males were eight times more likely to report having worked as a sex worker compared to non-sexually abused men right Um, One large study indicated that male sexual abuse survivors show a 14% increase in sexual promiscuity. So, you know, a a person who's sexually abused as a child, this awakens their sexual interest and desire much earlier than it should, typically in what we consider the latency stage of life, ages 6 through 12. And so then they're much more likely to become involved in sexual abuse. behavior and promiscuity with multiple partners right um uh, there is a question um again from our b do you have information on sexual anorexia you touched on it 
Well, san- uh, sexual anorexia is, is very sim- similar to what I talked about with hypoactive sexual diet desire right. disorder. So in the book, I do talk about uh, how sexual abuse can lead to sexual anorexia. And there are actually v- multiple reasons why. I don't have any statistics off the top of my head. There might be in there is a whole chapter in the book on sexual anorexia. So um, that is considered a sexual dysfunction that can result from from sexual abuse. Right. It's also interesting that 46 percent of gay men report a history of sexual abuse. And so I talk a lot about the link uh, between sexual identity confusion uh, and homosexuality as a as a result of of being sexually abused. Male Survivor and the the four groups that uh, hosted their version of Male Survivor Awareness Day, they had two different events. Uh, the all the males that they invited were all LGBTQ, and I think they're more comfortable talking about it. They're more comfortable with their sexuality, right? And so it's more easy for them to come out and talk about it, and it's probably very difficult for them to find someone who is not in that group willing to talk. And they said. Right. One of the groups was looking for people who'd be willing to share their stories, and they got very little interaction, one or the right. other. And just because I'm throwing that statistic out there that 46% of gay men report a history of sexual abuse, I am not suggesting that being sexually abused makes you gay. That's right. another myth. Right. Okay. I'm just showing that there's a correlation between those two things. I'm not saying that there's causation. Right. Okay, so I just want to make that clear because I know a lot of people could jump on that, yeah. misinterpreting what I'm trying to say there. Um, 25 to 39 percent of men who have sex with men, having men who have sex with men are men who identify as heterosexual, but will go out and have sex, sex with men. So the studies have shown that 25 to 39 percent of men who have sex with men report a history of childhood sexual abuse. And I talk about that in the book because it's probably really a PTSD reaction Mm -hmm. and men will go out and have sex with other men for uh, multiple reasons that I talk about in the book um, as and how it relates to male sexual abuse. And the last statistic that I want to throw out, because I want to get on to some of the other cool things that we have planned tonight, is that in over 90% of reported cases, females use persuasion rather than actual uh, force or threats or threatened force when committing sexual offenses. You know, we, we talk about male survivors and we all think in our mind that per- perpetrators are always male. The majority of perpetrators are male, but there is a pretty large percentage, uh, and I don't have the specific percentage off the top of my head, but females do abuse as well. And so I don't want us to negate men who might be here that were sexually abused by a female in your life. We want to validate that for you, that that was abuse and, and you are very much part of today's event and deserve to have just as much light and awareness shown on your abuse as men who've been sexually abused by men. Today's not about who your perpetrator was. Today's event is about that it happened to you. And it's also recognizing those abused as adults. And that was one thing I experienced as well. I was 20 when a minister uh, uh, sexually assaulted me. 
uh, that there's a lot of that that happens as adults. So it's not just childhood abuse, but also abuse as adults. And it's also yes. uh, men. Yes. Are, the, the today is about not just childhood sexual abuse, but male sexual assault. You know, right. you may have been raped by another male or even a female as an adult man. And that's that's very possible. So this is for people who have experienced sexual violation in at any age. Right, right. Yes, thank you for all that, Doug. That's wonderful information. Uh, now, part of what I do at uh, Husband Material, we have a subgroup that's free with your, if you're part of the uh, HM app, we have a free subgroup support group for survivors of abuse. Uh, we call it a CSA support group, but it's not just for child abuse. It's also those abused by adults. And I posed in that group, uh, what is one thing you wished non-survivors in husband material understood better about being a survivor so they can work with and understand us better? I got uh, a dozen different responses that I'll be sharing throughout the evening. And I've got a few I want to share first. Uh, the first one is, I would want them to understand how catastrophic and deeply impactful the fallout from abuse is for men. They often, like Doug said earlier, don't start processing it until their 30s through their 50s. This is why their worlds come tumbling down on them at a period when they should be their strongest. This is not weakness. It is PTSD and should be respected as such. Uh, second response is, for me, the abuse felt good. It wasn't a negative. I actually didn't define it as abuse until recently. I learned to receive acceptance I had to perform sexually. Couple this with a rejection from my father. I was a perfect target. I guess what I would want someone to know is that someone may not even know they were abused. Those are all very important because right. I think so many men don't realize they were abused or an older brother, an older cousin, an older neighbor showed them the ropes. Right. Well, no, that's not really what happened. That person was using you for the purpose of sexual gratification of their own. Right. And that was abuse. Jordan wanted to share his story. I asked him specifically he had been working on his story, um, and I will share that video in a moment. He could not be with us live. Let me set that up, and there we go. Hello, husband material men. My name is Jordan, and today I will be sharing with you my survival story. It's very sobering for me to share with all of you today. My story isn't a usual one. And all of our stories are unique, and there is power in the telling of story. Some of you may be able to relate what I went through. I want to pray as I share with you. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the men that are watching. God, we all have a story to tell. Story of horrible things done to us. And the story of you redeeming us. God, would you speak through me today? And would you speak to me? God, would my story encourage 
the men that are watching today? And would you speak to all of us and we would experience your love for us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, growing up, I had a fairly normal childhood. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, had a few friends, watched TV, movies, played outside for hours, and I enjoyed video games. I have two older brothers, my mom and dad, and we go to church every Sunday. As the youngest and more sensitive one in our family, I felt at times like I didn't belong. My brothers would beat me up, and it was hard to defend myself. Also, my mom and I were very close, and we had an enmeshed relationship. As I was getting older, my parents never talked to me about sex, and there was no education in my school. I saw a picture of a naked woman from one of my friends on a poker card. Me and my friends would try to get a hold of magazines and share them with each other on old VHS tapes. My freshman year of high school, at our church, they took us through some material on development. We were given a pamphlet about puberty and what would happen. Then we were shown a film in our class of moms giving birth. It was quite traumatic because we saw these babies coming out of their mothers and they showed everything. I was intrigued by it, but also shocked that we were watching a video like this at church. We were shown the film and then we left. There was no dialogue about it. And that video has been forever seared in my mind. Fast forward two years, and it's my junior year of high school. It's the first day of school, and I feel pretty excited and optimistic about the new year. I walk down the hall to my classes, and I get made fun of by a few classmates, which wasn't surprising because it had happened before. First period ends, I walk to go to my next class. More names fly at me. I ignore it to be the better man. I'm kind of getting a little bit confused by why it's happening a lot more than usual. Later at lunch in the cafeteria, several more people unload name after name after name at me. Queer. Fag. Homo. Bitch. Gay. And guys, way worse than any of those. And it didn't end there. So I went from class to class. Sometimes even during class, got called every name in the book. I was a cheerleader in high school. I was the only guy on the team. And because of that, people thought I was gay. At this time period, it wasn't very common for guys to do this, especially in my high school in the late 90s. 
I also lived in a very small town in Texas where football is king and you don't sway from tradition. I was really good at gymnastics and my tumbling skills secured a spot on our varsity team. The first day ends and I'm thinking to myself, thank God that is over. Second day, third day, fourth day, 10th day of school. It doesn't let up. I experience what feels like an onslaught of verbal sexual abuse and bullying on a daily basis. If you've ever watched a movie where the main character is being talked about by everyone and being made fun of, that was me. And it actually didn't stop with me. My family also experienced bullying as well. At times, I would try to fight back with words, but they seemed to hit nowhere. I was so confused and I felt powerless. Like something was wrong with me. Even some of my own teammates joined in with everyone. I felt like no one was on my side, except my three close friends and my family. I was struggling with the words that people were telling me, and I felt like an outsider, like I didn't belong, and that everyone was against me. I would try my best to have a great attitude about everything and act like nothing was wrong, and that's what my family taught me to do. At that time, I didn't even know how to fight for myself on such a scale, which probably nobody does. And I learned that I just had to take it to be strong and endure. The bullying did lessen as the year went on, but anger and bitterness began to take root toward those who bullied me. I felt rejection, disrespected, and alone. I desired so badly for it to all end and to be accepted. Later that summer, I went on a trip to a water park with one of my friend's church group. We were having fun, and at some point on one of the days, these two teenage guys walked up to me. They had been talking with one of the girls in our group, and she told them that I was a cheerleader. They asked me some questions about it, and then they left me. Well, as we get back into the water park, we're swimming in a lazy pool, and these guys started swimming after me. At one point, they pulled me underwater, and they started pulling on my swimsuit to try and take it off. And one of the guys, as he's grabbing at me, he actually grabs my penis. They're laughing at me as I try to swim away and calling me names. I pushed them off of me, swam to the side of the pool, and jumped out. I felt shocked at what these guys had done to me. But I already knew how to dismiss what happened. This event didn't resurface until just a month ago, and I've been processing with God about what had happened to me. Again, I felt rejection, 
and I felt like I didn't belong. All of these experiences eventually led me to looking up gay pornography in college and becoming highly addicted. Thankfully, I found a church with great community and have been able to experience love, acceptance, forgiveness, and healing. There's more to my story, and I'm thankful that God has been working to reverse what happened to me. Thank you for listening. May God bless you. I think Jordan's story is very powerful. I I talk about uh, in my book a portion of of something called gen- emotional gender abuse, and that's where boys are often made fun of uh, for something that is not mainstream. Uh, considered masculine and like cheerleading would be be an example or boys that are into art or music or you know something like that and then how they get bullied and often sexually abused like in the locker room or made fun of or um you know grabbed at such as what jordan was and and emotional gender abuse often leads to some kind of of physical acting out as well that is considered sexual abuse. So I I thank Jordan for sharing the story and it's very powerful. And I think it's something that probably many people who are listening today can, can relate to. Right. Definitely. Um, Let's continue. I've got another, what uh, should non-survivors know? I've got another story from that. Let me read that. I resisted answering this for a few days, not because there isn't a lot to say, but because my fatigue in general has pushed me away from delving deep. And so maybe that's my answer, that this stuff goes deep into every fiber and memory. It colors almost everything for me and is never far away from my assessment of my life and myself. Of course, I pushed it down and played it, downplayed it for years. I'm fine. That was all in the past. Neither are true. But as I'm dealing with my abuse openly and courageously, I've realized how this weight has hung around my neck for years and debilitated me. What I think I would want people to know is that true healing never looks like forgetting. It looks like scar tissue that no longer hurts. It may even, with time and the grace of Jesus in conjunction with my willing ascent, look like glory, strength, and redemption, but it never, ever looks like nothing. Yeah, we've got another video. Uh, Chris would like to share. He sent his video as well. He was not able to attend. Uh, Let me set that up. Hi, I'm Chris F. And for Male Survivor Awareness Day, I wanted to share with you a poem that I wrote about my abuse. And I also wanted to share something about what it's like to be a survivor to those of you who haven't experienced this. I would say that we survivors are more than our wounds, but our wounds are always present. I also wanna say that healing does come, but there's always scar tissue. But I really believe that like Jesus, we can be known by our scars and that we can act as wounded healers. So I want to read a poem to you that I wrote about my abuse called Russian Roulette. And just some backstory for you. When I was about five years old, and this is the era of my abuse, 
my parents brought home and put into our playroom an old heavy desk and put up a, a very heavy metal sign from my grandfather's office building. Now, we didn't know what was in the desk. In fact, my grandfather had been dead for a number of years before this. So as my dad was going through the desk on that first day, in one of the drawers, he found an old gun. Now he assumed that the gun was unloaded. He picked up the gun, pointed it at the metal sign, and found out that he was very wrong. Russian roulette. Dark wood paneling welcomes cumbersome steel desk, impossibly heavy metal sign, brush brown and brass, Phillips building hanging heavy in my playroom, impenetrable legacies of a grandfather a decade dead. He is a mystery. Now, silent clues sit in my playroom, a squat, glowering presence. The game to play is Russian roulette. Dad pulls open a drawer, mysteries lie within. From depths of memory, he pulls out a gun, dull gray, hearts pounding. What is it doing here? It's probably unloaded. No need to check. He aims at the building, the Phillips building sign, and pulls. Explosion, flash, bullet on ringing metal, pain and confusion, eardrums bursting. Who is screaming? Who is screaming? It is me, me. Russian roulette and I have lost. Babysitters come and go, mom and dad are busy, busy. Bridge club, daiquiri parties, laughter in polyester, joy rides in the MG in the muggy Southern twilight. Where do we find babysitters? Mom and dad need a break. This one will do, hurry up please. What is he doing here? It's probably okay, no need to check. We need to get going. Russian roulette, and I have lost. Years later, buried in a basement pile, I stumble upon that sign, Phillips Building, legacy of a grandfather four decades dead. Smooth surface bent inward from blunt force trauma. I turn my head, listening for echoes of the blast. My fingers find the bend, a mound of metal, shiny and gold, domed with the violence of that day, bent, but not pierced. Beautiful in a way, a story added to the secrets, a bullet wound from Russian roulette. Spin the chamber, pull the trigger, probably unloaded, no need to check. Have I lost? Bent not broken, insides poking out and polished by years in the force of a bullet. Thank you. Yeah, um, if you didn't catch the parallelism that he used comparing that event with the unload, with the, with the father thought was an unloaded gun with, let's just pull a random babysitter in. Oh, it's a male. Okay, well, fine, we're busy, let's go. And Russian roulette with random stranger not checked with their son who became their perp for Chris. 
that's such a deep analogy yeah that he used in such a deep parallel of really the carelessness of his parents in their physical actions and in their moral choices of just randomly leaving their child with right. anyone anyone will do right as long as i'm there to go meet my own needs right and, and they really were playing russian roulette with his life not knowing who these babysitters were who then ended up abusing him just like his dad took the chance with firing the gun in a playroom that could have easily ricocheted off that and killed chris or anyone else in the room right exactly very profound yeah thank you chris for sharing that i got a few more of what you would like a non-survivor to know about being survivors uh, I've been thinking about how to respond to this question. I'm having a hard time putting my thoughts on this into words. The thing that keeps coming to mind is I think I want them to know that I am strong. However, I hear my counselor's voice in my head asking, do you want them to know that you are strong or do you want to know that you are strong? Weakness or perceived weakness is a fear that I wrestle with daily. Another one, very short, encourage us to live beyond being a survivor. Encourage us to live as overcomers, or as the scripture tells us, more than conquerors. And um, that's something that the survivor recovery community, uh, Christian and secular, encourages to move from victim to survivor to thriver. thriver. Yeah. So you're thriving. You're not only just getting by, but you can thrive. And that's why uh, if you are part of the Paid Husband Material Academy, you have option of joining us on Thursdays for Thriving Thursdays uh, support group. And that's a live coaching call on Zoom uh, that I lead for abuse survivors and we talk. That's where I got all these from, was from that thir Thriving Thursday group uh, and the uh, support group, uh, subgroup within the husband material. So let's see what else is next. Next, we have a live guest who would like to tell their story as well. We have Kevin Bulger, who is joining us. Uh, Kevin is a member of Husband Material, and Kevin is co-host of the No Longer Ashamed podcast that he hosts with, uh, uh, yeah, there's the logo right there, uh, with Lori Hardy, uh, who helped train me as a coach. And if you haven't noticed it, uh, I've been a frequent panelist on their podcast, as has Doug. Uh, we've been on there several times, and they were the first place I told my story. You so, were actually our first panelist, our yes, first guest. Yes, your very first guest, episode 10. Uh, and okay. all those are, uh, if you go to my profile within Husband Material and check on links, there's a link tree page. Click on that, and that's all of my podcast appearances, including all the appearances I've uh, been on Kevin's podcast. Hi, everyone. It's good to be here, and I'm thanking everyone who participated especially those who tell their stories i know how much courage that takes and i just want to honor you guys and i thank you for your attention and i would like to just share my story really quickly and then introduce the podcast as well 
Um, I am a survivor. I was abused at a very young age, and it is actually my first memory. My first childhood memory was that abuse. And so that's basically when, when my memory began was that abuse. And then um, that lasted for months was an older family member that was the perpetrator. And then when I was 11 or 12, I was abused by an older girl. She was the older sister of one of my friends. And I was set up by my friend. You know, the whole thing was planned. I still don't have much memory of that incident. I just have fallout from it and had fallout for a while. And so, um, I kind of fit the mold as far as coming forward with my abuse. It took me when I was probably in my late 20s to finally come forward. And I don't know that I ever would have, except one of my friend's sisters came forward about being abused. And my friend wasn't sure if she believed her. She thought maybe she was trying to be dramatic and caught you know, get attention. But I told her I believed her because I had also been abused and I'd never shared it with anyone. One of the questions she had was, why didn't she tell anyone? And that's often a question we get as survivors when we come forward. Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you talk about it? Why did you wait so long? And that's, that's a really difficult question for a survivor because often we don't know the answer other than we're, we were ashamed to talk about it, or we were told, we were groomed that we would be in trouble if we talked about it. There's so many ways that we are groomed by the perpetrators that we um, believe them. So I came forward and went through years of, of intensive therapy, group therapy, and uh, got to a better place, but I had a lot of issues from being abused, mainly just my methods of coping weren't very healthy. They were generally drugs and alcohol and other ways of just doling the pain. Finally, um, got healthy and engaged to my wife, and I wanted to have my entire family there at the wedding. So I had to realize that the perpetrator was going to be there if I was inviting everyone. And I didn't know how that was going to happen because I had had to set up boundaries with the perpetrator. I couldn't have him in my life, so to speak. I had to uh, protect myself from him because whenever I was around him, I would have fallout. I would have, um, I would disassociate. I would, um, have depression and also resort to drugs or alcohol to just numb myself afterwards. So up until that point, I had really avoided that person in my life, but I wanted my whole family to be at my wedding. So I was praying to God for help and for guidance. And one day at church, the sermon was about forgiveness, and I realized I needed to forgive him. And I had not at that point, I had no intention of ever forgiving him. Um, I think part of it was, I felt 
power in holding on to the pain that he had caused me. And so I thought by not forgiving him, I was holding power over him. But the sermon was convincing that I needed to forgive him. I needed to do that not for his sake, but for my sake, for my own health. And I think that's something that we misunderstand about forgiving is that it's not for the person we're forgiving so much as for our own self. Um, because when we hold on to unforgiveness, we are holding on to that bitterness in our life and it eats away at our life. It eats away at our, our emotions and how we treat people and we can be ruining our lives with unforgiveness. So I was able to forgive him with God's help. And I think it was um, just kept praying for him for forgiveness. And I, I got to a point where he was very sick right before the wedding. And I started praying to God for his healing. And that's when I realized that I had forgiven him. And I realized that I was going to be able to see him. So that is my story. Um, recently, we did a podcast uh, two years ago, and I started it just to give people voices for their, for their abuse and to be able to tell their stories, because I believe telling your story is so important and being able to share it and to honor what we have been through. And that's why I have the podcast No Longer Ashamed that Mike has been on and Doug. And we've had over 20 guests now. Right. I love that backstory. Um, and uh, talking about the power of story, that yeah. not only is it healing for the person telling the story, but it empowers other men and women to tell their stories and to look at their stuff and inspires healing. When I hear other people's story, I, I learn so much on how to navigate my own healing. And by me sharing my story, it passes it along. I think that's why for me, the group therapy was so important because there were other men all different backgrounds, all different ages, and we all had different stories, but we also had many of the same issues. And to know that I wasn't alone, but was going through this with them, strengthened me to know that, yes, these things happen, and yes, this, this causes certain issues, but you can address those issues, and, and you can become a whole person. And that's why we do the podcast to, we talk about all the different, you know, we talk about many of the different issues and also how they affect us and how we can get through them. We're, we're all about healing and hope in our podcast. Yes. Definitely. A couple of things I wanted to point out was, Kevin, you talked about uh, forgiveness and, and we're definitely not on here preaching at people that, you know, you need to forgive your perpetrator. I think that in time you do, but you have to be ready to do that. And I think all three of us would agree on that. You have to be ready to forgive them. And I, and a couple of things I want to say is that 
Forgiveness is not an event. It's typically a process. And you may have to tell yourself that you're going to forgive this person multiple times. You may have to wake up every day and say, I'm going to choose today to forgive this person. It's not an event. It's a process. It's like that whole concept of 70 times seven. Uh, I know for me, (laughs) it's been so true. But as more and more stuff that my father did comes out, then it's like, ah. More stuff I need to forgive him for. So it's even that right. more stuff gets uncovered as you heal. Yeah, I, I, I wrote this in the chat, but I heard a couple of weeks ago this phrase, and maybe those of you, you know, maybe you've heard this before. It was new to me, but uh, holding on to unforgiveness is like setting yourself on fire, hoping the person that you're angry at will die of smoke inhalation. <laughs> I loved that. I thought That's that is good. so true. That's good. Yeah. Holding on to unforgiveness is just, it's destroying you. It's not destroying that other person. So, so do it for you. You know, just like in, in the very last chapter of my book, I think it's chapter, I don't know, 24 or something. I talk about um, being ready to confront your perpetrator. That's another area where you have to do that for you, not for them. It doesn't matter if they deny it. It doesn't matter if they say it didn't happen. You are finding your voice and saying, saying it out loud for yourself. It was just like Kevin was talking about the power of your testimony, the power of telling your story. Right. Adds and brings so much healing. Yeah. I also want to add for forgiveness, it does not have to mean reconciliation. In my case, it did, but often they're completely separate and forgiveness is for your sake, not necessarily theirs. And it doesn't mean you have to reconcile with the perpetrator and you know, yeah, there, there may be times where it's not appropriate for you. Yes, to yeah, there might be times where it's dangerous or so. Nor does it remove the responsibility if they did an illegal act. It does not relieve them of paying any penalties for that. Yes. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Right. Yes. Forgive and forget is not in the Bible. It's actually Shakespeare. So if you (laughs) know that, that's where that came from. And the Bible says forgive and forget. No, it does not. Right. So thank you, Kevin. I'm going to put you back as an attendee and we're going to be moving forward. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing with us, Kevin. And let's see where we are next. I've got another what non-survivors should know. Uh, it's shame. For me, it was always shame. I couldn't speak of my experience to anyone ever. And since it's so prevalent, I really could have. 20% of the men I've known knew something about what I know, but we were all in secrecy. I didn't want pity, just understanding, and I didn't find it unless it was with others who were resigned to the lies that it instills in us and were acting out with me. It's a self-perpetuating lie, and it could be dealt with by openness. I would want non-survivors to know that many people around them are living in secret shame. The title of Doug's book. Uh, Yeah. Uh, living in secret shame, and that is not something to fear, that they can live in the same space with survivors and find grace for everyone. If they are willing to be present with people who have been hurt like this and not look at them as 
contagious, diseased creatures to be avoided, but human beings who have been hurt and need understanding and friendship. I will tell you that I carried shame for many, 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 many years. And it even interfered with my ability to say that I had been abused because my abuser asked my permission before he did what he did to me. He said, can I do this to you? Or can I show you something is what he said to me. I want to show you something that feels good. Mm -hmm. Can I do it? And I said, yes. Yes. And that yes has reverberated through my mind for years and held so much shame. And it didn't let me admit that I was sexually abused because I gave him permission to abuse me. Yes. Grooming very much. Um, So sly and so sneaky what they do with that. Um, Making it seem like it's okay that, oh, it's just a secret between the two of us. It's this game we're playing. Um, Well, mine, mine was like, hey, I do this thing to myself and it feels really good. And I want to do it to you. Can I do it to you? Yeah. Yeah. Very sly, seductive. Children cannot consent. Consent. Right. Children under the age of 18 cannot cannot consent. consent. So it's all abuse. Uh, Next, we have a poem. Uh, Roger submitted two poems. I'm separating them out. We're going to play one first. Uh, Let me get that set up. My name is Roger. This is a poem I wrote at work uh, a long time ago when I was starting my recovery. It's called, I Feel Different. There is a thing that happens when I listen in the lounge. Sometimes when things are slow here, I run in there to scrounge. I often stop to listen to the chatter that abounds. I can't help feeling strangely as I listen with a frown. They talk of kids and shopping and of who is dating who. They grumble at the schedule and of all the work to do. Someone slipped a disc and someone else is getting fatter. It all seems so mundane that I can hardly stand the chatter. Off in my mind, I wander to the triggers that I fight. Memories that assail me when I close my eyes at night. Smells that seem to bring on all the fear and icky feelings. The times I fight so hard just to stop staring at the ceiling. My legs sometimes get shaky and I strain to keep them clear. My eyes get hard to focus and it's sometimes hard to hear. The thoughts that go through my head so fast there's no place for caffeine. I smile and nod my head as if I'm present in this scene. I deal with so much crap each day with home and work and life. Sometimes I want to run away and hide from all the strife. Instead, I go to bed each night and pray for better days and wake up in the dark, hoping to cope in better ways. I stand and sip my coffee as I listen to their banter, wishing I was one of them, my biggest need just laughter. A joke, a little gossip just to kill the time away, nothing heavy to disturb the mundane pace this way. But I am nothing like them. All my issues seem so grave. It's hard for me to make so light. I try, but then I cave. I end up in the corner, silent, watching them behave. 
as though they had no care at all, so happily they rave. Although I know deep down inside they have their struggles too, wrestling with their own demons perhaps that much is true, and yet it is so hard accepting that I'm just like them, because I feel so sick and bad from things I did with him. Thank you. I think his poem really speaks to the shame that people hold. Right. Yes, definitely. And let's see. What are we doing next? Uh, I've got a few more of what uh, should non-survivors know. Um, For me, it would be for them to understand and have patience for the colossal effort it takes to trust. The natural trust of a child was the first thing to go. Hypervigilance. Although I trusted God to save me when I was 12, I didn't trust him enough to talk about this. I was afraid if I did, he might reject me. It affected everything, and I felt fundamentally flawed. It took a lifetime to become desperate enough to take a leap of faith to talk to anyone about this and to talk to God about it for the first time. Trusting people is still hard. It takes a conscious effort. I think that makes me seem aloof, which is not an endearing trait. Second one, same kind of theme. Well, my experience left me with huge trust issues with men. In my life, men were only after one thing, and that imprinted on me heavily, that all men wanted to use me for sex. Undoing that false belief system took years, and in some ways, I'm still getting healing in that area. I noticed that as a common theme in the responses that has been, it will take time to earn trust. Well, the one man who made such a life-changing impact also is the one that assured me that only death would keep him from his commitment to me as a brother and friend. And then he disappeared. I need to know I am safe. I resonate with that a lot. Um, I uh, Serial monogamy best friends. So I'll have one best friend and I'll spend all my time energy on that one person to build trust and relationship. And then after several years, life happens, they move, and then it takes me a couple of years. Okay, next one, next best friend. Okay, then they move. And then the next, it, it takes time. And it's so frustrating. Now, I've got a few I have trust with, and that helps. So there's it's not just relying on one person. But it took time, and then I I can see how devastating that is. I feel that devastation. I know what that feels like. Uh, Doug, want to respond? I can see that, that so many men have trust issues in relationships, not not only friendships, but also romantic relationships, of really being able to trust their heart and their bodies to another person. Right. That goes back to the asexual um, part. I know a lot of survivors, Christian and not, who they're in long-term committed relationships, but choose to be asexual. Yeah. And Um, that's where I, you know, I've worked with people in the past, uh, 
learning how to separate abuse from intimacy. Right. They are very two totally different things. Right. But they get enmeshed in our minds and we have to unenmesh them for right. healing to happen. Exactly. Exactly. And we have another. This is from Daniel Eichelberger, and he would like to share something as well. So, Daniel, what would you like to share with us? What would you like non-survivors to know? Thanks for the opportunity here. I want to talk about um, an aspect of being a survivor that some people may not think of. Um, So I just wrote some thoughts down here, and I'll read those to you. A survivor's greatest fear is that they will not be believed. It is not enough to tell a survivor that you believe them. Your actions must prove it. It is helpful then to understand a survivor's reaction to abuse. So you will know not how to react, but how to respond to their needs. Childhood sexual abuse is the murder of innocence. We are grieving the loss of the child we were before abuse and the child that could have been had the abuse never occurred. In addition, we are trying to cope with the life-shattering realization that we were used to satisfy someone's animal passions, not because we were loved. We were warm bodies, useful only as long as our flesh was warm. The lies that propped up and justified the abuse and cemented our shame had defined our self-conception. Our childhood was a lie. It is no wonder that we experience continued grief. This grief that we feel is very similar to physical loss and bears all of the hallmarks of the so-called stages of grief, denial, anger, etc. It can be startling for non-survivors to see grown men wrestling with their pasts or revisiting events that happened decades before. If one sees childhood sexual abuse as a form of death, it can be a little easier to comprehend the depth of a survivor's feelings and the lingering aspects of their grief. Be careful of minimizing expectations. Expecting survivors to move on, keep it all together, or man up are not healthy or even human responses to the trauma of childhood sexual abuse. Well, what can you expect then? You can expect that the pain of survivors will often be recurrent. There will be times when our sense of loss is mitigated by the joys of the present. But it only takes a trigger, a flashback, a memory, a smell to bring the stabbing pain back. Survivors are faced with a lifetime of processing grief. Don't be afraid that we are somehow regressing if we hit a rough patch. We need healthy relationships with other men who are willing to listen to us without trying to fix us. 
We need men who are strong enough to bear our emotions. This is a challenge because we live in a culture where men are not adept at emotional connection. Grief is messy and men aren't supposed to be emotionally needy or messy. Do not be alarmed when a survivor calls on you for emotional support. We aren't really asking more from you than your empathy and your ear. We need your time and understanding. These are the most basic gifts that one person can give to another. Grief over what was and could have been. This is the constant companion of survivors. By allowing us to express our grief, by giving us your time and patient understanding, you will have given us the gift of humanity and the strength to heal. Thank you very much for that. That was very powerful. Very, very. Thank you, Daniel. I think, Daniel, you bring out some very important things for people who have not been abused. The greatest tool that you have is your ears and your empathy, your ears and your heart. Just just be willing to listen and express empathy. And that in and of itself can be so healing um, to another person and just help them feel feel validated, accepted, and that someone is present with you. Right. It's just like Daniel said, it's not about fixing. You can't fix this. Amen. But right. you can be present with me. You Thank can you. sit with me. Right. I love what you said about just get over it. Why can't you just get over it? I've had someone in recovery, in a recovery group, get frustrated with me. Um, Why aren't you just getting over it? It's a process. It's a long process. And new stuff just keeps coming up, too, as I heal. So there's more stuff I need to deal with. Um, So... Yeah, it's it's a long, very messy process. I like the thing I read earlier about the scars. It should never look like nothing. It may it will look like a scar that may not hurt anymore, but the scar is there. Yes. Uh, but it never looks like nothing. Right. And that's so so profound. Thank you, Daniel. Thank I you. That. Thank you for being willing to share. Now I've got another one. Uh, uh, what should, should non-survivors know? We can have a lot of weird hangups because of what happened to us. We are working through the process of overcoming and or outgrowing our hangups. And being our friend and giving us some grace can go a long way in helping that. Some ways in which you can help us is to ask us first if it's okay to huh, pat us on the back or Ask us about something you're curious about. My own thoughts. Yeah, uh, several people are touch phobic. I'm not. Anyone wants to give me a hug, uh, you're welcome to it. Uh, but other people are very, very sensitive about touch. They might startle and so forth. And that's very natural. So try to be respectful for that. We can have odd quirks, like insisting on sitting facing the door of a room or problems with confined spaces or tight clothing. 
Colors, smells, certain songs, or music can trigger an odd reaction that we might not be able to fully control. It's not personal, it's just memories, sometimes body memories. Sometimes in conversations, you might say something in jest that can unnerve or upset us. We understand that you're not doing it on purpose, hopefully, and we will get over it. We can have mood swings that have nothing to do with anything in particular, and just being patient with us really helps and makes us feel safe. In extreme cases, we may dissociate or have a marked personality switch at an odd time. Or you may meet us someplace and will act and speak in an unfamiliar manner. This may be what we call an alter personality that helped us survive in childhood during severe trauma. The best thing to do is to just go with it until the real personality you know returns. It's usually harmless, but if you are alarmed, just realize it's like the weather. Wait a while, it'll clear up, and it's nothing personal. Most importantly, most of us just need to feel safe with another person. If in doubt, ask. Many of us have trouble making and keeping the kinds of friends we so need in our lives. You might just be that one friend if you want and think we are worth the effort, and believe me, most of us really are worth it. This is an incomplete list and is just my thoughts. If you notice a, a significant change in your friend's behavior um, in some way, just like Mike asks, said, just ask them. Ask them what's going on with you right now. What are you feeling right now? What do you need from me right now? How can I be supportive to you right now? Right. Right. I know in some uh, Zoom calls and some HM calls, I will dissociate. Something will trigger me and I'll just be silent and still Drew has caught it. He's pretty sensitive to that. And he'll just say, hey, Mike, did you have anything to add to that? And just by saying my name, it may or may not, usually it does snap me out, snap me back. And it's like, oh, no, I agree with what that other person's saying. I can usually tell other people were speaking, no idea what was being said, but I would recognize voices. And yeah, just whatever uh, John was saying or Scott was saying or whatever, uh, even though I have no idea what they actually said, uh, but but it brought me back. And that's something that you can do. Don't bring attention to it. Oh, you were just dissociating, weren't you? Don't do that. But be sensitive and try to nudge them back in uh, and help them. But understand that's where it comes from. And then feel free to debrief later. Oftentimes, like if Drew caught that, it's like, yeah, I dissociated a little bit. Didn't I? It's like, yeah, you did. What happened? And then I can share and debrief what happened, what I thought the trigger might have been, if it was a word or a phrase or someone asked a question, and you can just lose it. So having that sensitivity is really helpful. Uh, next, we have another guest who wanted to be anonymous. He sent me his story to be read ahead of time. This is from Chaz. My CSA survivor story. 
For the purpose of the story, my, cha my name is Chaz. I'm using a pseudonym because my wife and my sons are the only members of my family who know this part of my story. For the majority of my life, I did not identify as a survivor of child sexual abuse. In fact, until the last couple of years, I had told all my therapists and peers that I had not experienced child sexual abuse. At least one of my therapists told me that he found it very surprising that I had no history of child sexual abuse based upon his assessment. Only after sharing this part of my story with Doug Carpenter and hearing some of his podcasts and presentations did I come to understand that a childhood experience I described to him was in fact child sexual abuse. Without sharing too much, I will share some of the key details of this experience. The experience occurred during an overnight campout, which I participated in with three of my cousins. Three of us were several years younger than the one other cousin who accompanied us on this campout. The older cousin exposed himself and did various sexual behaviors in front of me and my other two cousin, young cousins. This was done under the guise of teaching us things about our bodies and about sex. The older cousin was much more physically matured than us and seemingly knew much more about sexual things than I did. For years, I never thought of what he did to me and my cousins to be sexually abusive. I didn't think these things could be considered sexual abuse because he didn't touch my body. After listening to Doug's teaching and attending a husband material retreat, which focused on child sexual abuse, I came to understand how significantly these experiences had impacted my arousal template, my behaviors, my sexual development, and many other aspects of my life in profound and life-changing ways. I came to understand that this cousin's actions were indeed abusive because he took advantage of his power and influence as an older, more sexually developed and experienced person to subject me and my two young cousins to his behaviors for his own gratification. Also, I have come to understand just how significantly this experience has changed and impacted my life. This abusive experience during the cousin campout, along with a prior significantly traumatic body shaming experience about two to three years prior, and an early exposure to pornography within a few months after this abuse, all occurred when I was way too young to process or understand these experiences. I was very sexually naive, and these were unfortunately my earliest sexual experiences and involved people who were my family and whom I presumed to be safe. To be honest, I sometimes still feel a bit awkward about naming my experience as child sexual abuse because of the lack of physical contact. However, even though my abuser did not touch my body nor ask me to touch his, his sexual actions touched my mind and soul and have significantly impacted my behaviors, my self-belief, my belief about others, especially other men, and my relationships with myself and others for over four decades of my life. 
I wanted to share this part of my story because it might help others to consider how they too may have been impacted by child sexual abuse, even though they may not previously have understood those terms to define their experiences. More simply stated, I hope that sharing this portion of my story might help someone in some way. Thank you, Chaz. And so many of those stories where people doubt if the situation was sexual abuse, um, I will talk to them about, do you realize that that would stand up in a court of law as abuse? Yeah. And then they're shocked to hear that. Sexual abuse, according to the law, can even be an adult exposing you to pornography. Right. right. That's considered sexual abuse. You know, let alone if they disrobe themselves and perform sexual acts, even if it's just on them in your presence. Right. That is sexual abuse, according defined by law. It's a mess. People, groups are trying to change the laws, make them more victim friendly. Um, more uh, survivors are coming forward. Anthony Rapp just finished his case with his actor perpetrator. Um, it got dismissed, uh, but he said he was so proud of the fact he was able to stand up and speak his truth in front of court. And it didn't matter what the verdict was, he was able to share that, yes, this was happened and this was wrong. And I'm so thankful for these role models standing up and saying, yes, this is abusive and it was wrong and it should not continue. So I've got one more, what non-survivors should know. It wasn't until coming to male survivor and then here to husband material that I realized same-sex attraction is a common response to abuse. I thought it was on me. Although unwanted, it's still real. And a lot of times I fought the thought that I was gay. I had a straight married friend I had told about my same-sex attraction before I remembered my abuse. When I did remember, I was an emotional train wreck. And although I tried to keep it together, I knew I was screwing up being a normal guy to my friend. And the whirlpool that is abuse in SSA is nothing that would resonate in his experience. We're still friends. In the last year, I told him about my abuse and we're better friends because I told him. I guess I'd want a non-survivor to know it's okay if you don't understand what it is to live through abuse or with same-sex attraction. Thank you for trying to understand, even though it doesn't resonate with you. I'd want them to know that the times were kind of screwed up emotionally and that we know, we know it's on us, it's not you. And thank you for sticking with us. I'd want them to know that all we've learned that's helped us to survive maybe can help and encourage them in what they're facing, that to be a survivor is more than surviving. Amen. Yeah. I could talk for an hour just on that point. I know, I know. Um, And it also shows the value of friendships, how valued that is to us and hugely valued to me personally. Hey, it's Drew. I wanted to interrupt this episode because there was one poem by Roger that just felt so powerful to me and I wanted to make sure that you guys hear it. Here it is. I was a normal kid. I played cowboys and Indians, 
Hide and seek. Guess who's coming to bed? I played Army Soldiers, Robin Hood, and Show Me Yours. I played Tag, Dodgeball, Hide from Dad. I colored pictures, learned math, gave blowjobs. I rode my bike. I rode my wagon. I rode my dad. I was good at running, good at keeping my room clean, good at keeping secrets. My drawers were neat, and so was my closet. My showers were thorough. I learned to write. I learned to read. I learned not to cry. I was happy mostly. I was brave mostly. I was alone mostly. I read the funnies in the paper. I watched TV. I secretly watched my dad. I loved to climb stuff. I loved to explore the neighborhood. I let men and boys explore me. I loved getting new toys. I loved getting new clothes. I loved learning new tricks. School wasn't too bad. The kids weren't too bad. The pain wasn't too bad. I was just a normal kid.、It、makes me wonder why, as an adult, I'm so effed up.、Um, I got another quick poem from Roger.、Uh, let me load that up. I'm Roger, and this is a poem I wrote during my recovery and my inner child work. It's called "I Want My Blankie." I remembered you this morning. I still have forgotten almost all, certainly the bad stuff, mostly. In my mind, I saw you crying silently on your side, feet drawn up, and hugging your knees. Little tears, shaking, shaking. But you had your blankie. You were safe now, chewing on the satin edge, rubbing it against your cheek, going away in your head. Quiet place with the blankie. Can I whisper a you a secret? You will be older some day soon. It will be better. You will be me, and there will still be times, many times. I'm afraid, I will miss my blankie. I will want my blankie. Somewhere in time, it will be lost. So enjoy it now. Hug it tight. I will find substitutes soon. Not as good. Not as safe. Not as acceptable. Even though I won't say it, I won't even think it. But between you and me, kid, I want my blankie. Profound. It really is, and it, it, that's a great word, Mike. Is profound. I I was sitting here thinking how something so simplistic can hold so much meaning and so much value. Right. You know,、yeah. I could just see him laying there, drawn up, drawn up in the fetal position with that blanket, and it just made me want to hold that little kid. Right, I love in husband material. Drew focuses on、uh, older brother coaching and looking at that little boy within, and that is so key for survivors for our healing to help relate to that inner boy. And help understand because he held a lot of pain, 
a lot of those wounds. And oftentimes, adult survivors, they kind of, some of them hate that little boy. Well, and many perpetrators have blamed that little boy. Those little boys think that you asked for this. You wanted this. You seduced me. You were so cute. I couldn't resist myself. Right. Right. Like you shared with your own story, Doug. And also the whole idea that, yeah, body betrayal, that you may ejaculate, you may have an erection. And does that mean I'm giving permission? The the perps will use that. It's like, see, you wanted it. You wanted this right. time. And that's just so horrifying. Uh, they that use your, body, your own body against you. Right. Yep. Yep. Very, very true. Uh, let's see. I've got uh, two more. What uh, should non-survivors know? Uh, two last ones. Uh, first, I would like non-survivors to know that we sometimes live in a mental and emotional fog full of confusion and struggling to know our true identity as a child of God, and also struggle to recognize and claim our own beauty. Next one, I guess for me, I would want non-survivors to know that my abuse experience and, it affects me, and its effects make it hard for me to relate with other men. However, having healthy, platonic, safe relationships and interactions with other men is one of the most healing and helpful things in my life. It's sometimes awkward, and I'm not really good at making or maintaining these friendships after a lifetime of fearing men and simultaneously needing and longing for good men to accept, affirm, and befriend me. So please, be patient with me and know that your friendship is a powerful healing gift. They say uh, recovery doesn't happen by ourselves. It happens in community. And that's true for survivors of abuse or anything that you're dealing with. It's right there in the Bible. God knows he designed us to not be alone, but to be with others. A burden shared is a burden halved. Uh, all of those things. Yes, find your tribe, Kevin says, and you are all our tribe. Very profound and very true. So many things on friendship that just shows how important that is for us. And it's difficult for a lot of us to find friends who are willing to put up with all of our weirdness, craziness, uh, woundedness. It's, it's not even all that. It's just Sometimes men who've been abused just don't know how to be a friend. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Before we move to question and answer, I want to thank all the guests for uh, Chaz, for Roger, for Chris, for Jordan, and live with us, Kevin Bolger and Daniel Eichelberger. Uh, thank you, Doug, for being my co-host with this. And I have mentioned the CSA group. I have mentioned Thriving Thursdays. I'm also a, like I mentioned, a husband material certified coach. If you want more information about coaching with me or any of our coaches, you can go to the website, husbandmaterial.com slash coaching and information about all the different options and all the different coaches. And if you want to email me, uh, you can reach me at polar, P-O-L-A-R, life 
consulting at gmail.com. And Doug, how can they reach you? My email address is drdwc69 at me.com. Or you can go to my website, douglascarpenter.com. And there's also an email through my website that you can reach me. And if you are interested in sharing your story on Kevin's podcast, Kevin is also part of Husband Material and you can PM them. He would love to have you as a guest. Uh, and let's go to Q&A. I, don't, I know we've had a few earlier uh, that were already answered. Uh, let's see. We've talked about those things live. Uh, RB said again, and Doug answered this in text, but I will read that. Is there any correlation with females who sexually abuse males and their male shaming say negative things about the male gender? Third question. I said, I'm sure that there is. As I stated, for the purpose of my book, I only researched the impact of males who were perpetrated by other males, but all abuse is about power and control. And so any female who is abusing is working out of that same dynamic. So they're abusing in, in their power and control. And so there is definitely a degree of male shaming that's going on by them exercising that power and control. And then another question, any information about not being believed, whether most are not believed, um, yeah, I don't have any specific statistics about what percentage of people are believed or unbelieved. Um, as I stated in my response back to the individual who asked this question is the largest chapter in my book, which I think is chapter nine, is all about the process of disclosure. And uh, there are many ways to disclose, but usually people kind of use the foot in the door technique. Like they'll make one comment and see how it's received. If it's received well, they'll tell a little more. And if that's received well, they'll tell a little more. The minute it starts to be not received, the door gets slammed shut. Right. Uh, that happened with me telling my own mother about the abuse. Um, she knew that my father had abused several family members that had come out decades earlier. And I just asked her about that, thinking I could just move that door open a little bit and talk about me. And she said, yeah, I just couldn't get my head around it when I heard that. It didn't seem the right the right time. And so right. yeah, slammed that door. And I never told her. And then she passed away a few years later. So I did talk to my one surviving uh, sister about the abuse. And um, right away, she said she believed me. And that mm -hmm. was so helpful. And that's one thing you should do. If you have a friend or family member talk about their abuse, believe them. We don't make this stuff up. Uh, very, very few, I think, statistically, Doug. Um, very few, very few. Are made up. That usually if something is a made up memory, it's actually less than what the actual thing was. Yeah, there's a, there's a portion in the disclosure chapter where I talk about what the research calls recanting. Right. Recan that's when somebody's told a story and then recants it and says, oh, that that didn't really happen. I made it up. And it's a very, very small percentage. Right. And who knows the backstory to that? They might have been bullied into recanting. Um, yeah. So many family pressures and so forth. Yeah. Amazing. Um, let's see. Uh, next one. Uh, is there any information of others experiencing being told from an early from early childhood that they were bad and at fault? 
also being shut down whenever one tries to talk about it. Yes, and and I responded to that that many many children are believed uh, made to believe that they are bad or that they somehow instigated the abuse. Their behavior, uh, they are told that their behavior was asking for the abuse, or they were so feminine acting that I thought you were gay or you wanted it, or kind of what I said before. I've even heard kids told that you you're you were so cute, you were such a handsome little boy. I couldn't control myself. I couldn't resist. You know, which is again shaming to the child and making it their fault. Or you were curious, or um, I I think I use an example in one of my books that uh, a coach brought a kid over to his house and had Playboy magazines sitting out on the coffee table, and he saw the boy looking at them. So the boy, so he said, "Hey, do you want to look at these?" And the boy said, "Yes." And so then the boy, the coach used the excuse, "Well, you have an erection now. I can't let you go home like that. I have to take care of this." Mm, right. Right. So again, it's bringing the blame back to the child and making them believe that they are inherently responsible for the event. So, yes, that very much does happen with with perpetrators who are very keen and cunning in their grooming and manipulation. Right. Uh, One more question. This one from John. And we're going to close on this one. As a non-survivor who suspects he may have been abused. Is there a list of telltale behaviors or signs of childhood sexual abuse? There is not. I discuss in my book where they have tried to research and come up with something called uh, the, the sexual abuse syndrome, and they've been able to come up with a specific criteria. Uh, because it's it can involve so many moving pieces, there's not a specific way in which males react. Now, we can find high correlations like same-sex attraction, like um, sexual identity confusion. There are things that are high correlations with sexual abuse, but you can also have those things and not have been sexually abused. So so the answer to that is there is no telltale list. There is no syndrome. And that's why it does not appear in the, the diagnostic manual right. um, other than an individual's report is the way that you diagnose it of right. sexual abuse. And it becomes a journey of individual discovery. Yes. If you suspect it, um, uh, I know many, but not always, um, there's memory blocks, um, and, but you may not. Uh, some remember it, uh, but yeah, you might easily have a repressed memory. Um, certain smells, tastes. Um, back in late January, early February, both Doug and I were on Drew's podcast and getting ready for the virtual retreat on sexual abuse and telling about all the different options. And uh, I mentioned something, uh, a a CSA normal, what many, but not all survivors go through. And Drew made a whole list and that's available on the links to that podcast episode. And it has our stories there as well, which is why we're not sharing them that much today. Right. Uh, we've shared bits and pieces. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. And uh, in passing, I want to say uh, to survivors, know this, that it was not your fault. 
and going to repeat it because we always need to hear it more than once going right up to camera. It yes. was not your fault. fault. We so often as survivors take that, uh, that it was our fault, that we must have done something. As Doug just said, that grooming happens, that tries to convince you otherwise, but no, it was not your fault. And as Drew always closes us with this final thought, you are God's beloved son, and in you, he is well pleased. All survivors out there, we love you, and we pray for your continued healing. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Amen.